Well, good morning. We welcome you to the chapel. It's great to have you here, especially if you're visiting with us. Uh, we want to say a special welcome to you. We hope afterwards you'll hang out just a little bit with us and let us know a little bit more about yourself. We would love to hear that. Um, by way of reminder, in two weeks, two weeks from today, we're having a newcomer's luncheon. That's May 23rd. Which means, ladies, you don't have to worry about preparing lunch that day. We will have it ready for you. So if you're new to the chapel, what's new to the chapel? I don't know. You haven't gotten together with us to hear about our ministry here in the last year, year and a half. Is that good enough? We would love to invite you to a luncheon right after the morning service. And we'll get together in one of the rooms off here to the left. And we'll have food out there for you. And uh, so you get a free meal. Get to hear about us at the church. Meet the elders and the leadership team. And uh, we, we, we'd love to have that opportunity. So that's in two weeks, May 23rd. We'll try to send out an email reminder about that. And lastly, I'm going to just read one passage to you from Proverbs chapter 31 in light of the fact that today is Mother's Day. So the writer of Proverbs says this, speaking about the, the noble woman. She watches over the affairs of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Honor her for all, of her hand, all that her hands have done, and let her works bring her praise at the city gate. So for our mothers that are here today, we want to honor you, not for your perfection, because none of us have that, but for your commitment to know the Lord, fear him, and honor him there in your home. So we want to thank our, our ladies for that. And I pray that you will do the same for your mother today. At least call her, try to visit her, and thank God for her. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in your goodness and your kindness to us. You've given us many, many wonderful gifts and Father, one of those gifts is, is the gift of mothers. Our mothers are not perfect, we know that, but we thank you for the gift of motherhood. May we honor our mothers this day. And Lord, may our mothers be challenged afresh. That is a noble task that they do. Guide us now in this service, Lord. May our hearts worship you from the inside out. May you prepare our hearts for the sermon that you will be giving today through Tim. May our hearts be tender to you and be transformed into the image of your beloved son. In his name we pray. Amen. Father. 
Our Father everlasting, the all-creating One, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe. I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the name of Jesus. judge and our defender our judge and our defender suffered and crucified forgiveness is in you descended descended into darkness you rose in glorious light forever Thank you. 
believe I believe in life eternal I believe in the virgin birth I believe in the saints communion and in your holy church I believe in the resurrection when Jesus comes again for I believe in the Lord, we believe. I believe in God our Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three in one. I believe in the resurrection. And we will rise again. For I Even when I stumble 
dark. I hold to this I hold my shepherd will defend me through the deepest valley he will yes he will oh the night has been won and I shall overcome yet not I but through Christ fate I dread, no fate I dread, I know I am forgiven, the future sure, the price has been paid, for Jesus bled and suffered for my in me. 
Yet not I. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Yes, Lord, we proclaim that this morning, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Our lips do repeat that this morning. All the things that you've given us, everything on this planet, our life, our health, our safety, security, whatever those things are. And then beyond that, Lord, of course, our right standing with you, our, our, uh, we are forgiven for our sins. We are set free, the grace that you've given to us. The chains are broken. All those things are because of you, Jesus. We thank you that you've changed our lives forever. Those of us who know you who can sing, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Christ the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. All of us who can sing that know that you have changed our lives. We cannot imagine going back to what life was before. And we know, Lord, there are those here who don't know you on that level, who do doubt that goodness, who do doubt that they can be forgiven, that they can be saved, that God would come and save them for the things they've done. But there is amazing, immense, incredible grace waiting for them. So God, help us this morning, if we know you, to fall more deeper in love with you. And those of us who don't know, Lord, may this be the day that we kneel before the throne and say, I believe. God, we thank you for this time of worship. We ask your blessing on Pastor Tim now as he speaks to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Amen. You may be seated, and I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. Um, Julie, am I allowed to, like, acknowledge your engagement publicly? <laughs> so do you guys mind standing up and uh, facing the crowd for me real quick? I know you asked me privately to do this, but well, I won't tell anybody that either. So... This young couple is engaged in getting married in June. I think it's... Uh, Julia is one of my wife's dear friends, and uh, I tell people that there are few people that I know personally that I have the level of regard and respect that I have for, for you. LaRue, I cannot speak for you. He's a retired state trooper out of Pennsylvania, so, uh, so we're grateful and so happy for you guys. And uh, Praise God. Oh, yeah, thank you. I was going to ignore you, but you can't be ignored. Uh, so we're going to let the children be dismissed for junior church, all right? And by the way, kids, when we get to this point of the service, you can just go. Okay, if we forget, which we will, just go, okay? Mark chapter 14, let's begin uh, reading in verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest. This is following the text that Doug preached for us last week, the Garden of Gethsemane, that ends with the disciples uh, all fleeing and Christ being taken and arrested. After he was arrested, they took Jesus to the high priest and the chief priest and the elders and teachers of the law came together. 
Peter followed at a great distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat down with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priest and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll rebuild another not made with hands. There's a lot of embellishment on the part of the people speaking there. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer because those accusations were on the face false. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is the word of the Lord. I, uh, years ago, desired to be a good golfer. And I have to admit, sometimes desire and reality don't align. Uh, Craig Utt, sitting third row back on the aisle. I don't know if you still are a PGA card holder, but I know you were at one point as a pro. He took me and a pastor friend out and uh, gave us really good professional advice. And he said, I'm not sure that your hearing is good. I remember responding on the golf course with deep frustration, dismay, uh, maybe even self-inflicted anger against myself when I would miss a shot. I would line up, do everything that I knew to do, but the outcome was what's different than what I anticipated. And I, I, would, I, would, I would chide myself, come on, Tim, what are you doing? And my friend Chris, one day just stopped. He said, stop. He said, you're not that good. (laughs) Meaning, what you expect to happen, what actually happens, they don't measure up. So this self-inflicted disgust, it's just not appropriate. (laughs) You shouldn't be surprised that you missed that putt or that you sliced that drive or pulled it. You... He's kind of like, that's not, the surprising thing is when you hit a good shot. And so, often in our lives, we think better of ourselves than we should. And the text before us is clearly an account of when the prominent disciple Peter 
thought that, thought that he had it together, that he could stand the test, that he could be faithful to Christ. So he, he, he speaks of the future in bold terms. But I want to remind us this morning that the path of progress is often littered with struggles, poor decisions, bad choices, and tough days. Often, as one preacher, Chuck Swindoll, said, we take three steps forward and two steps back. That's normal Christian living, right? We, we ultimately, at the end of the day, are experiencing progress, but with fits and starts. There's a lack of perfection in our life. Thankfully, we trust in the perfection of Jesus as our only hope as we sung so beautifully this morning. The setting of the text that is before us is found in Mark 14, verse 21, 27 through 31, where Jesus says to his disciples, verse 27, he says, you will all fall away because of me, meaning something is going to happen in my fulfillment of the Father's will that will be so deeply troubling to you that you will deny me and run away. Verse 31 Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown or deny you. And here's the fascinating phrase, all the others said the same. Okay, so it's not just Peter that has an overly high self-estimation. It's all of us. Peter just happens to be the prominent spokesperson who's willing to literally say what he's thinking, to think out loud so that everyone has a very clear view of his heart. So the setting for this account is, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. 1450 tells us, however, at his arrest, they all deserted. Presumably, that includes Peter because it refers to all. So from the garden, they all run, and here's what I think happens. Because of his bold proclamation that he would be by the side of Christ and willing to die for Christ, Peter, as he runs and flees, is haunted with second thoughts, haunted with the memory of his promises that he is now, in a spectacular way, failing to keep. And as he runs, it haunts and hunts him down, and in response to his promise probably driven by his pride. Peter turns and he comes back. The text before us tells us that he is within the theater, the area of the court appearance of Jesus. Verse 55 The chief priest, the whole Sanhedrin, the elders, the teachers, you see in verse 53, the whole crowd of religious people have come together to unify in condemnation of Christ. We know clearly that this court, even if it's not illegal due to the time of night, which is what some will say, not a relevant fact. The relevant fact is that they are predisposed to the outcome. They're looking for evidence to put him to death. They are clearly prejudiced by their hatred, not by the facts. And so they bring Jesus in 
to this trial. Uh, one comes and bears false witness, and as we saw in 57 through 59, there is deep contradiction but unite, un, union in hatred. Secondly, there is a questioning, questioning of his identity, which is fascinating. They can't get evidence against him, so they go for the jugular. And they say at the end of verse 61, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, literally the son of God? And to that, Jesus cannot remain silent because that deals with his identity. And Jesus' response is fascinating. I am ego eimi. I am the great I am. In this statement, he equates himself with God himself. And then he adds this, and you will see the Son of Man. Now, if you're, if you're literate a little bit biblically, my men's Bible study group is going to jump out in your mind. Because you go back to Daniel, when you, you will find that the Son of Man is coming with the clouds, and he is eternal in his nature. And he is seated by God the Father. And Jesus responds to them and says, what you have said is correct, knowing that that confession will indeed cost him his life. There's a, there's a fascinating juxt, juxtaposition in this text. Peter denies Christ to save his life. Jesus speaks the truth to save yours and Peter's. So when the baseline issue comes, the identity of Jesus as the sinless Son of God who will ultimately become the sacrifice for our sin, there he will not be silent because it is about our saving and it is for our saving that Jesus Christ has in fact come. Well, the response in verse 64 is clear. The high priest in, in, in deep anger and in, in what is clearly a fake display of frustration and of, 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 of utter disregard for the person of Christ, says he's guilty of blasphemy. And he, he creates theater to strengthen and to get the response from the crowd that he desires. In the end of verse 64, when he says, what do you think? You have heard the blasphemy. They all condemned him as worthy of death. Jesus knew that when he spoke of his true identity, that the penny would drop and that the inception of his deep passion and suffering to pay the price for our sin would commence. And Peter sits at the fire, warming himself, watching this sudden turn of events. And, and now, now the, the, the outcome of this episode is clear. It is no longer up for question. Peter bails on his promise. I'll, I'll jump in and I'll die for you. I'll stand in your place. He utterly collapses in a spectacular fashion. In the setting of Jesus' trial, Peter faces his. Verse 66, it says this, while Peter was below in the courtyard... In earshot of what's happening, and later you're going to find that he's actually within a sight line of Jesus, meaning they can see each other. 
during this procession. That is a horrifying thought. Peter, not wanting to be identified with Jesus, but keeping his promise that I will not deny you, although all others flee, I won't. And he's there. He's in the theater, but he is so weak. He is so unprepared for the moment that is about to assault his existence. So they sit by the fire, Peter warming himself. And one of the servant girls looked at him closely and said, you also were with him, that Nazarene Jesus. This is a private conversation. Peter says, I don't understand or know what you're talking about. In eyesight of Jesus, he shows utter disregard. Then he relocates to protect himself without shaming himself. He stays within the theater. It says, he went out into the entryway, end of verse 68. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, now, Watch what happens. It goes from a private conversation and a sudden one-time denial to this girl saying to people around, hey, hey, that guy, he's from Galilee. And I think he's part of Jesus' entourage. Guilt by association. Peter begins to feel the pressure of this moment. And the text in this being called out publicly, it's, in, it's in, in the original language, it's in a, he kept denying, he kept speaking. And in his, in his speaking, what is he doing? He's betraying the fact that he is accused of, that he is in fact from Galilee. And then verse 70, or verse, second half of verse 70, it says, and Peter Uh, After a little while, I'm sorry, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them for you are a Galilean. How would they know he's a Galilean? Because he's been talking so much. His first reply, a single word as the pressure intensifies. He gets real talkative because he's getting nervous. And he repeatedly denies and they pick up on his accent and then they call him out. You surely are one of them, a Galilean. And the Galileans were the riffraff of the nation of Israel. They were the troublemaking state up north that couldn't really be trusted. Fickle, prone to follow false messiahs, unreliable, and sometimes worthy of death. Well, the fear of that really stuns Peter. Verse 71 says this, he began to call down curses. Presumably, these would be, may I die if I am not telling the truth. Sad, because he wouldn't die for the truth. But he's willing to die or call down death on himself for a lie. Okay, that, hopefully you can get a little insight into how twisted our hearts become when we wander from the center of truth in Jesus. And this is where you find Peter. It's interesting at the end of this verse, verse 71, he says, I don't know this guy, you could literally translate it, I don't know this guy you're talking about, like very cavalier disregard for the one who has promised to go to the cross for Peter's sin. 
And in, in a moment of self-preservation, he opts for Peter and throws Jesus down the stairs. Verse 72 is a haunting verse. It says, immediately the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. You will put me aside. You will act like I am an unknown person to you. Three times. And the text gives us the conclusion here. It says, Peter broke down and wept. The end of Luke says that he broke down and wept bitterly. But it says that after it says, Jesus looked at Peter. And Peter knew in that moment, he understood, he comprehended how far he had fallen. Folks, listen to this. Peter is the one that in previous chapters, when Jesus said to him, Peter, who do you say that I am? He says the same thing Jesus says here. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. How spectacular is the fall of one who walks in his personal strength. I believe that's the warning of this text to each one of us as children of God's. We think ourselves mighty, strong, capable. But apart from the power of God, we are nothing. And so this text ends with Peter in full meltdown. The text tells us that when the, co- when the rooster crowed like an alarm, immediately Peter remembered, Peter is alarmed. He has preserved his own life. But the success is sad and haunting. In this text, we see in Peter a full disintegration of the one that Jesus said was the rock who made the great confession upon which the church of Christ would be built. And where is he now? He is in a complete meltdown of spectacular proportion. One writer said it this way, the rock cracks. Peter becomes a pile of quarry dust, unstable and only useful for a path to be walked on. And yet this text is hopeful because of Jesus' promise to Peter. So in the midst of assessing how horrific and how dramatic this failure is on the part of Peter, we have hope that it's just kind of, it's just tinkling in the background. It's just, it's just making little sounds that over top of and above the spectacular failure on Peter's part, there is hope. There is hope that resonates and that echoes through this text. And we see the failure with, with a ghast, if you will. But we also, as we read it, we remember the hope. Hopeful because of Jesus' promise. Because here's the truth from Scripture. Peter's failure cannot destroy the purposes of God for his life. Peter's failure cannot destroy the purpose and promise of God for his life. And I don't know where you are today. I've been in the valley. I've been in dark places where my self-preservation has led to disintegration of my commitment to Christ. And I have felt pulverized. 
Here's the truth. We learn much from brave examples of faith under fire. And we often tell the good stories, right? Don't you love it? Almost every story here in church ends well. (laughs) That is the examples that we tend to use. We tend to admire people that live a better life than us. And I'm going to tell you what, that is not real helpful. Okay, it's not helpful for me. I remember as a pastor early on, I used to go to a, a lot of pastor's conferences to learn how to do ministry. Truth, to learn how to be successful. I never went to the conference of a pastor who had 20 people in his church. I went to two conferences of pastors that had 20,000 people in their church. We like the stories of success. The truth is that the kingdom of God is built by many Stories of broken lives and the restoring work of God's grace. This account is here so that we can look at Peter's example. We can resonate it as one with it, as one looking in a mirror. We can see ourselves in this colossal failure when we thought better of ourselves than we should have, and we tried to live the Christian life and experience in our own strength. Here's the truth of this story. In a short period of time, in a month and two weeks, Peter will be filled with the Spirit and boldly proclaiming in the face of great opposition and threats of death, the glory of the cross work of Jesus. And that says to me, Tim, and all of your weaknesses... There's hope. There's hope because the Spirit of God takes up residence in the heart of every believer to fill and empower and to enable what you could not do on your own. I want to just give you three applications from this text. From this abject failure on the part of people that teaches us often better than the good examples because we resonate with Peter. The strength of his denial is a warning. It tells us how far down we can go. But it is also a comfort for our souls. Because it tells us how far God can raise us from the pits of despair. And when you're in the pit, you need to remember that in Christ, there's hope. So these applications. Self-denial and cost counting must precede Christ following. Okay, and I'm going to show you how this ties in. What does Peter do three times in this text in relation to Jesus? What does he do three times? He denies Christ. Okay, the word that's used there is the same word that's used when you go back to Mark chapter 8. Verse 34, Jesus said this to his disciples. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. And then take up his cross and follow me. Meaning you are not ready for the cross until you have dealt with yourself. Until you have said goodbye to Tim Hoff's agenda. You are not ready, Tim, to follow Christ. Peter made a proclamation that one day he will be good on. I will die for you. And he will. He is not there yet. This Cost counting, Christ following, the, the, the expense, the toll on your life for Christ following must be reckoned with. 
I don't care if you're a young person. I don't care if you're an adult. I don't care if you're old like me. You need to reckon with the fact that you must say goodbye to yourself and your personal agenda if you would follow Christ. And that is a reckoning that Peter had not gone through. So Peter does in this text do denying. But he's denying Jesus to preserve his own life. Because guilt by association in this context could and probably would mean sudden death for Peter. And what Peter promised, he can't deliver. He warms himself by the fire while the fiery trial eats him up. He seeks comfort and self-preservation, but he learns a lesson here that is borne out in 1 Peter chapter 5. I want you to listen to these words. These are the words of Peter towards the end of his life. He says, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Now, I would say that what he says there and what he does in Mark 14 is diametrically opposed. Lord, though all these deny you, I'll die for you. Later, Jesus will say to Peter in John chapter 21, Peter, after the failure, after the resurrection, sitting at dinner, Peter, in front of all of them, because it's there that he threw them all down the stairs. It's there that Jesus looks at him and says, Peter, do you love me? The implication is above your own safety, above your own preservation, above your own well-being, do you love me? Jesus calls him out. And in this act of bringing restoration, Jesus forces Peter to see his failure and to cling to Jesus. Folks, if I don't deny myself, I will always default to self-preservation. If I don't have a clear reckoning that this is not my life, it's God's, I will constantly be prone to failure. Peter's failure to deny himself led to his denial of Jesus. And in that moment, he was unwilling to share in the sufferings of Christ that he said he would share. Self-preservation and self-love are always a recipe for spiritual disaster. You've got to reckon with who you are. You've got to ask yourself, where in my life am I caving Where am I yielding to the desire for people's approval at the expense of God's? You know, for young people, that is particularly powerful. But it's also true and powerful for adult believers as well. I used to think, I can't wait till I'm older because then peer pressure will subside. (laughs) Yeah, right. The lies we believe. I'm going to tell you something. Think, well, when I get out of my teenagers, when I get out of college, the pressure will fade and I'll be better. No. No. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And what Peter needed to do, instead of saying, Lord, I'll die for you, he needed to say, Lord, take my heart and remake it. 
Make me what I can be by your power and for your glory. So self-denial and cost-counting must precede your desire to follow Christ. You need to have a reckoning with God, and that reckoning is probably going to need to be repeated. Peter would get self-denial. He would die for the cause of Christ, shamelessly, and in a self-sacrificing fashion. Peter also would get humility. Here's the truth. Peter... In Mark 14, early when, hey, you guys are going to leave me. Peter's like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, Peter, yes, you will. You'll deny me three times over my dead body. I'll die for you. What's going on in that moment? Though all these deny you, I won't. I'm going to tell you what's going on. Peter thinks he's better than them. Peter thinks he's more devoted, he's more courageous. After all, he is the leader of the disciples. And so because of the height of his exaltation, his fall is even more amazing and astonishing and troubling. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, let him that thinks he stands, take heed, watch, lest you crash. That's what happened to Peter. full of confidence and vibrato. It caused him to believe that he was different from others, but the truth that's revealed is, Peter, you're just like us. And relying on his own strength, he would actually fall farther, interestingly, than the others. I mean, this part that he called down curses is a troubling passage of Scripture. Either he is calling down curses on Christ or curses on himself. One of the two. Either option is not good because he is up the ante so high that he can only experience a spectacular fall from the precipice that he has placed himself upon. Be careful what you promise. Peter got humility. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. And here, listen to what Peter says. God opposes the proud, but helps the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up in due time at the right moment. Peter was not ready for success on this day because he had not reckoned with his desire to preserve his own life. Folks, it's never about us. It's always about God. Peter made it about himself in front of everybody and was stripped of any honor that he desired. It is a verse that I often quote to people. I always tell people it's in Proverbs. I've been lying for probably 10 years. I found that it's in 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 11. Here's what it says. It says, don't let the one going to war Boast like the one that is returning from war. Okay, think that through. Don't let the one going to war boast as if he is returning victoriously. Don't talk about 
how good you'll be in the trial until you're on the other side of it. Better to speak of what you have done than what you hope you will do. Okay, just let that settle in. Better to think about what God can do through your life than to boast about your own faithfulness. May God help us through this text to to reckon with our brokenness and our need for his amazing grace. So Peter got self-denial, Peter got humility, and Peter got forgiveness. Watch what happens. There is progress in Peter's life that is solely dependent upon God's grace because God's move of grace in our lives is always initiated from his side, not ours. We may know how broken we are, but we are blind and ignorant as to the appropriate solution to our brokenness. In fact, First Ephesians 2 says, we have no desire for the restitution with God that we so desperately need. In this text, Mark 14, 28, says this. You can just look back in that chapter. It says this, Jesus, to the disciples, the shepherd's going to be struck and the sheep are going to scatter, but after I have arisen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I will go ahead of you. You disciples that are going to flee, I will meet you in Galilee after the resurrection. I love that. Jesus is preparing for their reconciliation and restitution prior to their sin and failure. Let that sink in. Prior to them feeling the brokenness, before they said, we will never leave you. And they all said the same thing. I'll die for you. And they all said, yeah, yeah. And they all flee. But before that fleeing, which he predicts, he says, I'll see you in Galilee. Folks, there is, a, there is a, be- a beauty to that that I hope can capture your heart. A beauty in the grace of God that is advancing towards people that he knows will fail. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That's why John Newton said it saved a wretch like me. It pursued in my rebellion graciously, faithfully, persistently. That's the promise that's given to Peter here. Mark chapter 16, if you just flip ahead two chapters, you're going to see after the resurrection, Jesus meets some women at the tomb. He says to the women, tell the disciples, listen to this, tell the disciples and Peter. Not tell the disciples, tell the disciples. Peter's part of that group. But for emphasis, he singles Peter out. Why? Because Peter had failed colossally and publicly and shamefully. And Jesus invites him to a meal. Because in the New Testament context, a meal is a picture of restoration and fellowship. So that the man who feels like he's on the outside, and here's the truth, he deserves to be thrown to the curb, as do I often. Jesus says to this woman, he says, you tell the disciples, I'll see them in Galilee. And tell Peter, because he's going to be real reluctant about this encounter. But you tell him to come. Folks, that's the invitation to us today. Here's what happens. We think 
that our sin that is isolating us is so dark and so putrid that it may be unforgivable. So we stay outside of the realm of God's grace. And Jesus says to his disciples, I want you to come to a meal. And in that meal, you will experience a full-blown restoration and reinstatement as my sons, as my servants, as my proclaimers, as my apostles. Everything that has been taken away from you in your failure will be restored. And here's the truth. If Peter can be restored after cursing Christ, there is hope for me and there's hope for you. Some of us tend to amplify our sin when we should be seeking to amplify the cross because that's where our hope is. The love of Jesus precedes, informs, and motivates all the love that I ever express. So if I find myself less loving than I should be, I need to get back to the cross. And I need to be assured that Christ died on Calvary's cross before I ever had a thought in his direction. His love is amazing. It precedes and informs and motivates every good work that we should ever do. The beauty of grace is that Jesus predicts Peter's failure and provides for his restoration. And I want you to notice that the restoration begins in the very last six words of this text. After Peter disowns and the rooster cries as an alarm clock, if you will, it happened. Peter broke down and wept. The book of Luke says that he wept bitterly. He was stunned by the depths of his sinfulness. Folks, here's the truth. Until you are aware of how deep and dark your sin is, the cross will not be attractive to you. Not until the Spirit of God shows you and convicts you of how far you have gone will you see that you desperately need the grace of God that is revealed so beautifully in the person of Christ. Peter's tears mark the beginning of his restoration, not of self-pity. Folks, I want to tell you something. Self-pity will never change your life. Regret, shame, never change your life. It will only bury you deeper in a horrific place from which you cannot escape apart from the grace of God. Hope begins in this awakening. Hope begins when you are shocked by how far you have gone. There is hope, this text says, after failure, but repentance is a crucial step in that. To refuse repentance is to prolong the painful way of rebels, which Proverbs says the way of transgressors is hard. And yet what we always think is that in my sin, I will find happiness. I will find satisfaction. I will find joy. I will find the desire met. But only more shame. Only more shame. Peter comes to realize that the cross that he had opposed 
so vehemently. I think on three occasions in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus speaks of his death, going to the cross to bear their sin. What is Peter saying? I object. I object. I have a serious problem with that. Because he doesn't realize that the cross is essential to his saving. And Jesus lovingly and patiently continues to bring up this topic that leads to his death, that leads to our forgiveness through his cross work and and resurrection. Hope is found in the awakening of a true acknowledgement of my sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, and this is to lead us into our communion service. Peter speaking of Jesus, and again, it's Peter, okay? He says of Jesus, he himself bore my sin in his body on the tree so that I might die to sin and live for righteousness. And then this proclamation, by his wounds, I am healed. Folks, let that resonate. Let it resonate. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that Peter so strongly opposed so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness by his wounds, by his being broken on Calvary's cross. We are healed. Peter's got a different perspective. The cross of Christ is not to be opposed. It is to be embraced. It is not a shame. It is saving. It is the end of despair. It is the end of shame. It is the end of self-disgust. It's kind of funny when you think about it. Peter thought that he would die for Jesus. But he needed Jesus to die for him. And later he gets it. He gets it. Our hope is found in the perfect achievement of Jesus Christ that is proclaimed through the elements of the Lord's table. And here's the way communion works. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says to the church, he says, we're going to share in this celebration. And he says to the church, examine yourselves and then eat that bread and drink that cup. Okay, now I I, I want to be clear. Paul is not saying, this is the way I was raised. This is what I heard my whole life. My brother's here. You can resonate with us. Our pastor will get up and say, if, based on 1 Corinthians 11, if you're here today and you examine your heart and you find that you have sinned in your heart, let it pass. So that you don't drink and eat damnation to yourself, which the text forecast. But when you unpack that verse and go slow through it and look at the words, it literally says this. Examine yourself. And if you find sin in your sinful heart, own it before God. Put it under the blood of Christ, then eat that bread and drink that cup. This option of a Christian knowing they have sin in their life, but unwilling to repent of it and turn from it, does not have a place in Scripture. A Christian, when they see their sin and are confronted by it in light of the cross will repent upon examination. The implication is that you would confess it then 
and then eat that bread and drink that cup and in that. That's why Paul can say, when you do that, you are proclaiming Christ's death until he comes. Why would you examine yourself, find sin, and step back? It's not the biblical model. Jesus doesn't come to Peter on the shores of Galilee with the suggestion that Peter might want to think about a turn change of heart. He comes assuming that the truth of the cross has so confronted Peter that it has broken him. And that when he asks him if he loves him, he knows the response is going to be, yes, Lord, you know. So this morning, as the elements go around, if you've never trusted Christ, there's no reason to partake. Because partaking in the Lord's table is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you know Christ, Paul's command is to you, look at your heart. And if you find sin, when you find sin, God, I need your grace again. Forgive me. Be specific. Then Don't put your head between your knees and grovel in shame. Boldly eat that bread and drink that cup and proclaim Christ's death as your hope until he comes. That's why we have the Lord's table. So that we would be confronted by the blood and body of Christ in symbolic form. See how much he gave for us. Be broken, be confessing, and be proclaiming. Okay? This account is about hope. This table is about hope. Beyond my sin, there is forgiveness. Not forgiveness that I achieve by taking this, but forgiveness that I receive and then proclaim through the elements of the Lord's table. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we are grateful for this account that is at many levels shocking and spectacular in its ramifications. It shows us that we need to walk so carefully. It tells us that we need to walk in deep humility, that we need to be free from any brag, from any boast, and resolutely trusting in Christ alone. So, Lord, I just would simply pray this morning that as as we go to the Lord's table, if there's someone here who has never seen the spectacular nature of their sin, I pray that today they would see it and know that the wages of that sin is death, but that there is hope in Christ. And that if you, Holy Spirit, are drawing on that heart today, I pray that you would give the gift of repentance and saving faith so that lives today can be changed for your glory. I pray, Father, for someone here this morning who is a believer who has been groveling and disgust and and, and self-mutilation and and, and just self-harm because they don't believe that they can be forgiven. I pray, God, that the, the story of Peter, which goes way beyond anything that we could ever do, would awaken them to the fact that there is hope in Jesus Christ who invites us to a dinner. And in that dinner, he proclaims his body broken for us, his blood shed for our forgiveness. Oh God, this morning, may we take communion in a fresh way. May we examine and be honest and confess and then eat that bread and drink that cup as proclaiming. Fill us with courage, Father, to exalt and glorify you, I pray. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said,
Amen.